One of the most common questions we hear from our buyers is how do we get accepted? A full 60% of the homes are going into escrow with multiple offers and 30% of the homes are going in over asking. How does it get done? How do our buyers get accepted? Stay tuned. We're going to tell you how. With over 50 years of real estate experience, the team at Powell Fine Homes have dedicated our careers to taking care of our clients, ensuring that they get the best possible results and service when they engage us to represent them. From first-time home buyers to multi-million dollar home sellers, from regular sales to short sales and foreclosures, we've seen it all and educated our clients along the way. As broker owners, we have serious visibility into the Los Angeles and Ventura County real estate markets and are about to share some of what we're seeing with you right now. Get ready for the Powell Fine Homes Real Estate Show. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Powell Fine Homes Real Estate Show. Today we're going to talk about buyers in the current buying environment and how competitive it truly is. We're here in February of 2018. We're basically dealing, at least here in Southern California, we're dealing with inventory levels that are about where they were in 1994 on a unit count and we have the population of demand and demand that we have in 2018. A full 60% of all the homes that are going on market wind up in multiple offer situation. And a full 30% of all homes going into escrow are going in over asking. So, the question of the day is how, as a buyer, do I get accepted so I can get the keys to my dream home? And today we're going to tell you how we do it with our buyers because we enjoy a very, very high successful rate in multiple offer situations. We always have, and it's because we approach it a little bit differently. But there's a few tried and true principles that everybody has to do, no matter what the market is, if you're a buyer. The first one we want to talk about is getting pre-approved with an excellent lender. There are probably more lenders than there are real estate agents in California, and they're certainly not all the same. One of the first things we do whether it's Kirsten or myself or one of our team members, when we're out there looking with buyers that we just met, we want to say, are you pre-approved? Have you spoken with a lender yet? And a lot of times they say, yes, I've actually got a pre-approval. Here it is. And we'll take a look at it and we'll call that lender up, hoping that it's not a dot-com lender, but that's a whole different story. But we'll call the lender up and we'll say, okay, what kind of due diligence have you done on this pre-approval? And let us ask you this. Have you actually verified their reserves? Do you, have you seen bank statements, brokerage statements, what have you? Have you run their credit already? Can you tell us their high, low, and middle credit scores? Do you have desktop underwriting approval in this price point from them? And the, what they call a DU approval, it's a software program provided by HUD, Housing and Urban Development. And all the lenders use that. They plug in the reserves, the income, the debt they have, the, all this for the buyer, the credit scores. And then they run through and the numbers get crunched and the machine will come out with either approved or declined. But if they can send us that approval, at that point, we've done everything we can to ensure that they are actually qualified and we can write offers and we can close a deal in the price point we're operating at. And also, as a side note, when we're the listing agents, we still do the same thing. When an offer comes in with a pre-approval letter, we'll call that lender up and say, hey, we just got an offer on one of our listings. Your buyer's name is this. We'd like to talk to you about it. Please tell us the following. And we ask the same set of questions. And if they can't give us that answer, if they haven't checked the reserves, if they can't tell us they have a DU approval and send it over right then, then we have to share that information with the seller and say, you know what, they may not be fully qualified. If we're in multiple offer situations, let's set those guys over to the side. So once you have a pre-approval letter in hand from a good lender, we know everything's under control. At that point, we start looking. And the first step you should do 
is a buyer is go look at neighborhoods. One of the first steps we do, especially with people coming in from out of town or out of state, is the first day we take them out, we typically do it on a Sunday during open house day so we can cover a lot more territory than you normally would with uh, scheduled appointments when people are living in the house and you have to say, okay, I have to be here at 1 o'clock, here at 1.30, so forth and so on. So as we're driving through the different neighborhoods and the areas, and it could vary, we have three major valleys here. We have San Fernando Valley, Conejo Valley, Simi Valley, which also includes Moore Park on the far west side. Where we start looking depends on the client's price point that they've been approved for. And as a side note, again, we're not always trying to hit the high end of your price point. We want to find you the right house, whether it be at the bottom of the price point or the high end of the price point. But price always dictates where we're looking. So does geographic distance to your work, type of school district you're looking for, if that's important, and wherever else we're going to find the things that are most important to the client. So as we drive through on the open house Sunday, the first trip that we take with a buyer, we typically drive the geographic area. It could be the city, it could be the entire valley, let's say Conejo Valley, for example. On the far east side, you know, you have Agora, Agora Hills, uh, then you run into Westlake, then you run into Thousand Oaks, then you run into Newberry Park, then you're over the hill and you're going over into Camarillo. Unless you head north, then you'll hit Oak Park over there uh, towards the top of Agora. So what we would do is drive in all of the cities and neighborhoods that will hit our client's price point. And from there, as we drive through, then we'll talk to them about the school districts, about the neighborhoods, what we know, what we like, clients we have in those neighborhoods, what they, what kind of feedback they've given us. And then once we find a neighborhood that we want to focus on, and sometimes it's two neighborhoods we want to focus on, at that point, because it's Open House Sunday, we go into as many open houses as we can, regardless of the price point, just to find how the houses flow, what the build quality is like, what period the homes were built in. We'll already know that as realtors, but we want to have the clients experience it as well because when you go through the different periods you know speaking of age at this point you know the house is built in the late 60s through the early 70s then the house is from the mid 70s to the mid 80s and then mid 80s to mid 90s and then after the 90s you can definitely tell big differences in flow architectural design how light a house is the 70s i tell you what those guys wanted to put as many little boxes as they could into the big box when they were designing rooms and houses. A lot of those are just dark like tombs. You can certainly fix the exterior rooms with additional windows or things like that. But quality of life in the house is very important. And somebody might say, oh, I have to live in this school district or I have to live in this neighborhood. Having only looked from the outside and talked to people who live there. But once they walk into a house, it may be so dark they can't stand it. We've had people who say... I have to have a pool, I have to have a view, I have to have, you know, there's certain things that some people look at as true deal breakers, and they won't come off of it, and we'll find them something with that. But then there's other times we've had people who say, oh, I have to have an island kitchen, we find a couple of island kitchens, but the islands are either so big or so small, they're like, okay, maybe I don't need that island. If I've got enough counter space, I can deal with it. We've had people who say, oh, I have to be next to open space, and then the homes that are available on open space, they look at Sometimes they fall in love with it. We talk to the insurance agent and say, okay, how much is it going to cost to insure this? Because as we all know, in Southern California, fire is a serious issue. We had one we were showing, I think it was two years ago, over in Old Agora, right off Chesboro. And the house is about a million and a half, about 3,200 square feet. But the fire insurance quote came back almost $9,000. And the only two insurers that would touch it were Chubb and Lloyd's of London just because they were right next to open space and if fire came roaring down that particular mountain, it wasn't going to stop until it hit this property. They know that and they don't really want to write that policy, but if they do have to write the policy, it's going to cost you a lot of money. These are all the things that we help our buyers look through as we're diving through the geographic area and trying to 
find the neighborhood and the model home that's best for them. The next principle that is important across all buying spectrums is have realistic expectations. You rarely are going to find the perfect house. As a matter of fact, about 10 years ago, we represented a, a seller, which sold the house for them. And then uh, it was an architect who had spent the last 20 years designing their perfect house. And they wound up buying up in Beverly Glen and bought, built this spectacular, truly spectacular house. Two stories, elevator, all kinds of stuff in it. And I spoke to her probably 18 months after she'd uh, finished everything, been living in it for a while. I was like, hey, how's the house? Is it everything you hoped it was going to be? And she's like, you know what? There's a few things I'd change. And then she went ahead and talked about the things she'd changed that she had to do all over again. So here we have somebody who's a very accomplished architect, a very much in demand, built her dream house herself, designed it, everything. And once she moved in, she realized she still didn't have everything the way she wanted it. So being realistic is very, very important because if you're not realistic, A, you won't ever find a house you want to ride on, and B, it's just it's incredibly frustrating for everybody involved. So when we talk about being realistic, here's what we mean. When you sit down with your broker and you make your list of haves, must-haves, want-to-haves, nice-to-haves, at the end of the day, you need to realize if you can get 70% of that list, you're doing good. If you can get 80% of that list, write the offer, and if you're getting anywhere north of 80, do whatever it takes within reason to get the house. Because quite honestly, other than location, you can change almost anything. You know, If you're next to a busy road or a railroad track, or an airport, that is what it is. You can't change that. But if the house is too dark, you can put solar tubes through the roof, you can add additional windows. You know, the big things have to be enough square feet or enough room in the yard to where you can expand somewhere down the road if you have the capital. That there's no built-in obsolescence. And when I say that, we're going back to the busy roads, the open space if it's a fire area with no views, uh, near railroad tracks, things like that. So, if if you get 70% of your list, you're in good shape. You know, if you get 50% of your list, you probably shouldn't write on it. But, you know, if you get into the 70, any, from 70 on up, and that's still a subjective number, I realize. But at that point, you can get the house, you get into it, you love it, and you work on making it everything you want over time. Because, you know, going back to my architect, she built her dream house, and she was paid by people to build dream houses. And it still wasn't right once she got into it. So you're never going to get 100% no matter what. And if you can find 70% of what you're looking for, you're doing very well. The next thing you want to look at, let's say we found the house that's 70% or more of what you're looking for. It's time to write the offer. You should always look at how you can make your offer as strong as possible. It's not always about the dollar signs. That always is a heavy part of that. Don't get me wrong. But we have certainly gotten multiple offer situations where our client is the one who gets accepted and we were not the highest price. So let's talk a little bit about that. There's some ways here in California, anyway, if you're listening from outside California, thank you very much. But this is primary California protocol, if you will. The default inspection period is 17 days. That's written into the contract. You have three default periods. You've got 17 days for inspections, 17 days for your appraisal, and 21 days for loan approval. It used to be 17 days for loan approval too, but they changed that a couple years ago. But anyway, so we're talking about how can we make the offer stronger without necessarily putting more money on the table. One of the things you can do is shorten your inspection period down to 10 days, sometimes even down to seven days. If you're not going to be out of town and you have a flexible schedule, 
Seven days, honestly, is more than enough time to do just about every inspection under the sun. You, the main one you want to do, of course, is the home inspection. And, you know, there's a couple caveats with that. There's good home inspectors, there's bad home inspectors, and, you know, just like everything else in life. They're not licensed, and that's something that I don't think people realized. You know, they have to have some sort of training. You certainly want to try to get one that's a member of CREA, which is their professional association. But they're not regulated and licensed like your broker is or your real estate agent is, like your termite guy is. The pest control guys are licensed and regulated by the state, but home inspectors are not. So when you're looking for a home inspector, when you're interviewing home inspectors, if you do that, or when your agent recommends a home inspector, ask them, well, you know, were they ever a general contractor? What did they do before they were a home inspector? Because you get three types of home inspectors. You get one, we call them chicken littles. They call out everything. I mean, just everything under the sun, they call it out, whether it's to cover their butt so they don't get in trouble, if they did miss something, or if that's just their personality, I don't know. But they call out everything and oftentimes create unnecessary concern on the buyer's part. Then you go to the opposite end of the spectrum, and you have the home inspector who doesn't call out anything. And, you know, we don't use anybody like that, of course, but the ones that we've seen like that, I think they just don't want to run the risk of blowing the deal and not have the agent call them back again. But, you know, we just had an inspection not too long ago where, you know, the home inspector came in, he was gone in about an hour and 15 minutes, and on this size home, our normal home inspector that we use would have been there the better part of three, three and a half hours looking at everything. So you have that on the other one. And the type of home inspector we look for is a combination of both. He'll call out everything, but he gives proper context. For example, if we're looking at a house that was built in the 50s or, or mid-60s, which is very common in the San Fernando Valley and in Conejo and parts of Simi, when you look at those houses, there's plenty of things that are not meeting current code. However, they did meet the current code when they were built, and there's no obvious issues with them. The one we see most is uh, the electrical panel, where all the circuit breakers are. There's a brand called Stablock. There's another one called Zensco. Uh, you know, they're, they're older designs, and there are certain situations where those cause issues, particularly when people have taken some of the older circuit breakers out and you have open spaces and they can arc. Uh, but if, you know, what part of the home inspection is they pull the front panel of the circuit box off, they look at all of the, uh, how all the circuit breakers are tied in. They want to make sure there's no double taps, and that's when two hot wires are plugged into one circuit, whereas you should only have one wire to one circuit all the way through. They want to make sure there's no evidence of arcing, you know, no evidence of any kind of burning or sparking or anything like that inside the box. If you have any of that in kind of evidence, then absolutely you have a safety issue that needs to be corrected by the seller prior to uh, close of escrow. And if they don't agree to that, then you want to get a credit to cover the cost of replacing and upgrading that box. On a regular house, single family house out here, if you're going to pull the old Zinsco type panel, put in a new 200 amp panel, get the stoka work done and everything. It's around between $23, $2,500. Some people might even quote as high as 28 But it's at least it's a number that you know ahead of time you can negotiate into the request for repairs, get the credit towards your closing costs, then you pay for it yourself on the other side. So, you know, when you go through your home inspection, the home inspector will call out. Typically, you want to leave them alone. If they say, I'm going to start the home inspection at 10 o'clock and it's going to take, you know, an hour and 45 minutes, then you want to show up about the hour and a half mark because, if you're sitting there the whole time, the home inspector, a lot of them will want to talk to you and say, oh, I'm finding this, I'm finding this, while they're still in the middle of their inspection. 
it distracts them, they may miss something. We always advise our clients to come the last 15 to 20 minutes because uh, we'll always ask the inspector ahead of time, how long do you think this house is going to take? And we'll confirm it again once uh, we're on site with the inspector on in the morning or afternoon of the inspection. But when they say, okay, I should be ready for the walkthrough about 1.30 if we started at noon, we'll tell our clients, hey, okay, come in around 1.15 or so. And at that point, you can go ahead and take any measurements you need to do, if there's any last-minute photos you need to do. But the home inspector's been uninterrupted during his entire inspection, so that way, when he's done, he'll say, okay, I'm finished, let's do the walkthrough. And at that point, it varies by inspector. Some inspectors will actually walk you through and say, okay, let's go outside and look at the water shutoffs. Here's your gas valve shutoff. Uh, you know, let's go look in this bedroom. I found this. Here's a crack here. Or, you know, whatever they find, they'll actually walk you through. And then other ones will just sit at the kitchen table and they'll have their camera or their iPad or whatever tablet they're using. And they'll sit down and they'll say, okay, I found this in the bedroom upstairs in the front. And they'll have a picture of it. And they'll just, without walking the house, they'll show you all the things they found. So it's always important to be there for that. Even when we're the listing agent, we'll show up to the walkthrough of the inspection just to hear how the home inspector's telling the buyer's agent and the buyers. We want to be able to give our sellers context so when we receive the request for repairs, we can give proper context and say, yeah, you know what, this really is a safety issue. You need to address this. Or... We might, you know, heard the way he said, don't worry about this. This isn't that important about an item. And when it shows up on the, requir- the request for repairs, we can say, don't worry about that because it wasn't really important. You know, context is everything on this. Also, many times the home inspector will tell you, hey, you know what? I have questions about the roof. I'm not a roofer. You should get a roofer. That's the most common one we hear. Sometimes we hear about plumbers. Sometimes we hear about electricians. When I'm and I'm talking about the verbal report as the home inspector goes through because they'll tell you nine times out of ten, hey, it's a great house. These are minor things. Don't worry about it. Or they might say, hey, it's a great house. There's two safety issues. You really got to get those fixed. We're done. And uh, you know, if you get those two done, you'll enjoy the house. Go for it. If you read the written report, though, it's always different. No matter even the inspectors we use all the time, there's almost always one or two things they didn't talk about because it wasn't important in their mind but when you read the actual write-up it's scary you know so you have to address that as well so as we're talking with the home inspector and he says yeah go i think you should get a roof or we have you know i got questions i don't like the way the flashing is done or it looks like there's some penetration i can't tell if it's new or old that kind of stuff then you go ahead and get a roofer Most roofers will charge you a couple hundred dollars to jump up on the roof, take a quick look at everything, and then they'll say, okay, here's what we found. And it could be everything, anything rather, from replacing mastic or adding more mastic, which is that tar-like substance you see around the vent caps and the other flashings on the roof. Or your shingles are really shot and we need to redo the roof. Or this one section needs to be worked on. There's always little things. And sometimes there's big things. So it, it really depends on what they tell you. The other inspection that we see called out about half the time, it really depends on the age of the house, is the sewer mainline inspection. And then what we do is we have a plumber that will come out and he has a, basically it's a camera on a 200 foot hose that he will run down either through an access pipe on the roof or if there's a clean out in the front or back of the house, he'll run it through that. But he basically runs this camera from the house all the way down the main pipe going out to the street sewer to give a visual inspection to see if there's root penetration coming in or if the pipe is cracked anywhere 
uh, or depending on what type of material it is, sometimes they just collapse out in uh, parts of Thousand Oaks. And quite honestly, anybody, anywhere that was built from the late 60s to about 74, 75, they have a pipe called Orangeburg, which is basically, it looks like orange stucco. However, it's, I guess you would say, a, a resin impregnated cardboard or something like that. But it was a fiber board that we're finding out now, 35, 40 years later, that it is collapsing and, and it's about a five to seven thousand dollar repair depending on how it's addressed and how bad the damage is and how long the run is and things like that but on houses of that period or houses that are more than 30 years old or houses with giant trees in the front yard where the main line will most likely be going through you would definitely want to get the main line sewer inspection done to see if there's any root penetration cracks breaks or any other obstructions that might be there but other than those the roofer and the main line sewer inspection we rarely get called outside of that. But if they find some kind of electrical issue, if they find some kind of plumbing issue, you may have to bring another plumber in. But even with, let's say they called out everybody. A guy says, yeah, I love the house, but you need a roofer to look at this. You need an electrician to look at the panel and you need a plumber to look at the main line. You can still get all of that achieved in two or three days. So shortening your your inspections windows down to seven days should not be an issue for most people. If, they're, if they have a flexible schedule, in 10 days, you should be able to cover anything. Another way you can make your offer stronger is to shorten the appraisal contingency. However, the only situation where you should do this is if your realtor or your broker has a great relationship with the lender, they've done a lot of deals with them, and this lender does have some sort of guarantee for a short appraisal window, for lack of a better term. We do have a couple lenders we deal with say, hey, you know what, our appraisal will be back in seven days. And they say that with you know, full conviction and they can execute and that's great. And as long as you have a lender who says, yes, I can get the appraisal turned around in, you know, seven days or 10 days, whatever it is, then go ahead and shorten the appraisal inspection down. But what you don't want to do is create an expectation that you cannot meet. And what I say that is, you know, don't shorten the appraisal window if you can't hit that, if your lender can't hit that, you're not going to be the one hitting it, but your, your lender has to be confident they're going to be able to get their appraisal out to the property, appraised. The appraisal will generate the report, get it back to underwriting, and underwriting will sign off. So you, as the buyer, can release the appraisal contingency in that window that you promised. So we typically shorten the inspection windows down to 10 days if we're the buyer's agent and if we're the listing agent. And the counteroffer will shorten it down to 10 days because, quite honestly, it would have to be an exceptional scenario to not be able to get all the inspections you could ever want in a 10-day period. So... There you have that. We just discussed appraisals as well. So the other things that we do, Kirsten and I, as, as your broker, we will start the relationship. Once you've focused in on a house, you say, we really like this one. I think we're going to write. And then we say, okay, we, we talk about it some more. And you say, yeah, I do want to write on this house. We reach out to the listing agent. And we know a lot of listing agents, with having been doing business in all three valleys as long as we have. But even if we don't know them, we'll call them up. We'll start building rapport. We'll get... What's the seller situation? You know, we want to find that out. What's the listing agent situation? Most critical is what's most important to the seller. Sometimes it is flexibility in the escrow time. It could be that they need 45 days on the escrow. It could be that they need 60 or 90 days rent back at your PITI, of course. So whatever your payment would be is what they'd be covering. But, you know, finding that out and writing the offer tailored to their needs, as long as it doesn't violate any of the buyer's needs, you know, often is the reason that we get accepted in a multiple. And it's not always the highest price. You know, just 
with your agent knowing your situation as the buyer, what you can and can't do. If you have a hard deadline where you have to be out of an apartment or another house, that kind of takes away the rent back ability, unless you can put your stuff in storage and go live with a friend or a family member for a couple of months. But we always try to find out what's most important to the seller and tailor our offer to that. Another question we're always asked is, should we write a letter? And it depends. Quite honestly, the answer for most of our real estate questions is it depends on the scenario. But if it's a multiple offer situation, then I would always advise, yes, write the offer with a letter. How it's going to be received, we don't know. Sometimes people love that it tugs on their heartstrings. And I've also had sellers that look at this and say, why did they write that? I don't care about that. You know, it really is an it depends situation. But in a multiple offer situation, I've never seen it hurt somebody. I have many times seen it help somebody. So the letter is a good thing in multiple offers. So let's move on to the next phase. Let's say we've written the offer, gone through counters, we got accepted. Congratulations, you are now in escrow on your dream house. We're working our way through it. We've opened escrow. I want to talk about things that are important for you to do at this point. When the escrow company sends you your buyer's pack, it's important that you fill it out as soon as possible and get it back to them as soon as possible. One of the documents you're going to see in there is called Statement of Information. And they're going to ask you where have you lived for the last 10 years, where have you worked for the last 10 years, uh, you know, your full name, date of birth, all these things. And you're going to wonder why do they need this much information? And it's for the title company primarily because the title company who insures the title of the home against any kind of uh, what they call clouds on title or any other actions that would preclude you from having a clean title when you take possession, they want to make sure that in case there's somebody who has a name very, very close to yours, uh, you know, have the, somebody who's got bad debt or have liens attached to them or something like that, that once you close on this house, that somebody's not going to come after you guys and, and attach somebody else's liens to it. We see it all the time. Matter of fact, we just closed a house month, last month that had a sales tax lien from the state of California on it. And the only thing that was similar was the, the husband's name, first and last name. The middle initial was not the same. The age was not the same. Social wasn't even close. So they were able to remove that immediately as soon as we identified it. But when they get that, it takes them a while to get that into the system and run the searches and all that. So it's very, very important that you, once you get it, sit down with your agent, go through everything in the escrow paperwork, fill it all out, get it back to them so they can start doing their job. Next, you, the most logical step would be the inspection right after that. And if you, we already talked about the home inspectors and how they work. So once you get your report back, and I say report, it could be multiple reports if you have multiple inspectors. But once you've gone through the reports with your agent, you sit down and say, okay, what's reasonable? Some people want to just send over the uh, entire home inspection report and say, fix everything. Every time as listing agent, we've had something like that come over. We talk to the seller, of course, and we all laugh. Then we say no, and we send it back. When you do your request for repairs, you should be reasonable. Again, another subjective word, but reasonable is all the safety issues being fixed. But you don't want to say, okay, there's a cracked outlet cover. I need you to put in the new outlet cover. I saw a scratch on a door. You need to repaint it. Uh, you know, there's little things that cost nickels and dimes that, that you can fix yourself or maybe your agent takes care of, whatever. But but don't nickel and dime the seller to death because if you grind them to the bone during the negotiations for requests for repairs and then something comes up later where you need something from them, 
let's say the appraisal doesn't come in on time and you need a couple extra days, you were in a multiple offer situation, if you can't release that, they'll say, okay, we're going to cancel the, the contract and go with our backup buyer because they say they can do that. If you've made them very angry during the request for repairs, they may want to blow you out to get the next buyer in. So be reasonable. Your agent should certainly be able to walk you through that. Have a specific list that you send back or if you or your agent have a accurate assessment of how much it would cost to fix the things that are in deficit, ask for a credit. That way you can control the quality of the repair. Many times people say, oh, just fix this, 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 and this. The guy may do it himself. He may hire the cheapest handyman he can find. You don't know the quality of what's being done. Whereas if you get the credit to that you know an amount that will cover the cost to have a professional tradesman come in and fix whatever's wrong, you can make sure that it's done right, and we always advise that if possible. We'd much rather have our repair guys do the work than somebody we don't know and had no insight into what was going on. Okay, as we get through that part, you're still in escrow. We've got the request for repairs negotiated. If there is a credit issued, your lender needs to know about it immediately because it alters their paperwork and their numbers, and the underwriter has to see it and sign off on it. Also, speaking of the lender during this process... They're going to ask you for a lot of things. It's going to make you crazy. I'm just warning you now. They're going to ask for the same thing possibly twice or three times. That's the rarity. You usually ask for it once, but you got to understand there's multiple levels of underwriting going on. You have the processor who typically works in the mortgage broker's office. Then you have an underwriter, which is at the lenders, whoever's actually sending the money to purchase the house. They're at that facility. Sometimes they have a senior underwriter on top of them, and at each level, somebody's going to say, hey, where's this, or I'd rather see something like this, or I'd see this different, so they'll ask you to resubmit things. You know, the, the most common ones are going to be, you know, your most recent pay stub, your most recent bank statement, those kind of things. If you're in a 45-day escrow, once something gets over 30 days old, they consider it expired, they need the next one, that kind of stuff. So you're going to get a lot of requests for that. Part of your job as the buyer is to provide it as soon as possible. The quicker you get those things, the quicker they get turned around, the quicker you get full approval, and you can close escrow and move into your house. Okay, let's talk about things you should not do. And I want to be very, very serious for a moment. You know, sometimes we have this conversation with our clients and say, okay, here's the things you can't do while you're in escrow. And they're not paying attention, so then you know you got to go into that Samuel L. Jackson mode and go, Concentration. And then when we're talking to them, then at that point, they're like, oh, I'm sorry. These things are critical because you can blow up a deal. You might be pre-approved going into it. You may be, you know, your money's fine. Your credit's fine. Everything's good. But then you get ahead of yourself and you do some things that your broker said, please don't do these things in escrow because it will change your credit score or it will change your qualifications. And all of a sudden, you can't buy a house. We have a list that we give our clients it's got about 55 or 60 things on it. And I just want to cover some of them that are really critical and can blow the escrow up if you do them. So things you absolutely should not do during escrow. Don't quit your job. Don't change your job. Underwriters really want to see that you've been in the same position in the same industry for at least the last two years. Don't buy any large ticket items. You don't want to change your reserves if from your cash side, and you don't want to increase your debt-to-income ratio on your credit side. Don't make any large deposits into your bank account that does not have a paper trail. 
Okay, and when I talk about that, if you're borrowing money from somebody, there needs to be a paper trail. You need to have a gift letter from that person. They have to say it's a gift, not borrowing. You have to have their bank statement showing when the money came in. Basically, you have a 60-day window with most lenders, but 90-day window is always safe. If the money's been in your account 90 days, they don't care where it came from. If in the last 60 or 90 days they start seeing these huge deposits that are over and above your normal income, they want to know where it's at, where it came from, who it came from, with a paper trail. You're going to really be honest with your lender about child support you pay or receive, alimony you pay or receive, that kind of stuff, because they're going to find out sooner or later. You want to make sure you disclose all that ahead of time. If you have to sell a house in order to buy a new house, that has to be clear. Usually that's a normal conversation between a broker and their buyer. However, two years ago, we had a listing in Thousand Oaks where the buyer uh, wrote a non-contingent offer, said, you know, don't have anything to sell. He was actually living with somebody at the time, living uh, either with parents or a relative or something. And uh, we asked the buyer, are there any contingencies, or buyer's agent rather, are there any contingencies? Are there anything we need to know about? I talked to the lender. The lender's like, no, reserves are fine. Everything's fine. The underwriter for the lender ran a, a national property check and the guy was still on title for a house with an ex-wife that he had divorced a long time ago or she had divorced him, whatever it happened. But his name was still on title, even though she was making all the payments and everything else. He Actually, he was still on the loan. He wasn't on the payment, on the title. He was on the loan. And uh, because of that, even though she was making all the payments and they could prove a paper trail, where not, even in the divorce decree, that uh, she was going to make all the payments, he was still on the loan. So that disqualified him. So make sure that if you have a house or a divorce or something in the past, that it's all clean and the lender's fully aware of everything that's going on so you don't have any surprises that way. Don't delay getting the paperwork back to the lender. We talked about that with escrow. Same thing for the lender. If they're going to ask for a lot of things, get it back to them as soon as you can. In a market like we're in today, if you see a house you like, going back to the 70% rule we talked about in the beginning of this podcast, you should probably write the offer immediately because the house that you see today that you go home to sleep upon and think about and then write the offer tomorrow, the guy who saw it yesterday slept on it last night and he's writing the offer this morning. So, Good houses don't last in this market. If you've been looking in the market at all, you'll know that. Every house we put on the market last year was gone within a week, one of them within a day, just like five hours after the open house, we had multiple offers coming in. So if you see the house you like that has what you want, write on it immediately. Don't co-sign on anything, no matter how much somebody begs or anything else. If you're in escrow, even if you're about to go, if you're even looking for the house, don't co-sign with anything because it's going to ruin your debt-to-income ratio and cause unnecessary issues on your mortgage. Don't schedule a vacation right before close. We have this happen fairly often. It's not because they scheduled it after they knew they were in escrow. It's a vacation that was scheduled a year out, and it's just happening at the same time they're in escrow. In the modern world, we have digital signatures that work almost everywhere. We've certainly closed deals with clients in Europe, South America, Asia, one in New Zealand a couple months ago. Uh, however, if you're on a cruise ship, you're pretty much cut off from the world at that point. So if you're going on a cruise, don't do it during your escrow or else you might have problems closing on time. 
don't change your name during the mortgage process. We had somebody that got married in the middle of the escrow, legally changed her name, and it messed up all the bank documents. They had to redraw them, and it was a pain. If you're going to change your name, wait till you close and you have keys to the house. Another thing as a buyer, well, I probably should have brought this up earlier instead of right now, but with today's technology, with Alexa hiding everywhere, with uh, whatever Google's new thing is, with the dot hiding everywhere, you have to assume that when you go through a house and you're looking at it, there's some type of recording device on recording all your conversations. We typically will warn you going into a house when, we are, when we're representing you as the buyer. We'll give you the speech before we even start looking at houses. Say, just remember, anything you say in the house is probably going to be recorded and passed on to the sellers if they're not leaving a computer on or if they might have a Nest camera. You know, it's crazy. We were doing an escrow last year, and during the home inspection, the people who lived out of state and uh, all the cameras were dormant when we were there. And then we came for the home inspection. You start seeing all the little blue lights and the cameras light up all over the house. So I had to call the buyer or the listing agent and say, hey, can you please have your buyers, you know, log out of the camera system and quit watching this during this inspection? I don't want them, you know, hearing what we're looking at and talking about. And they didn't realize we'd catch on to it. And uh, they were mortified. And, of course, they shut everything down immediately and everything was fine. But, you know, you just assume automatically that anything that you talk about in the house the seller's going to listen to. I've seen the Nest cams. I've seen other, you know, there's a million different spy cams out there. I've watched people leave their laptops up where the blue light on the camera's on, but the screen's dark, you know, just all kinds of things. But, you know, don't give away your negotiating power and don't talk tactics, strategy, or pricing or how much you love the house until we're either back in the car or outside talking. Don't go window shopping and pull open a new credit account even though you didn't buy anything. We've had this happen probably a half dozen times over the last 15 years. And, you know, just two years ago we had somebody, <laughs> we, we, we talked to them three times about this and they still did it. And, uh, yeah, don't pull the credit because what happens is, you know, sequentially, the mortgage underwriter or the, actually the mortgage processor that works with the loan underwriter, it's going to pull your credit immediately when we, we pull the application. But they also pull your credit right before they fund the loan to see if there's been any changes. And we had these guys that, uh, you know, went to Best Buy. Best Buy was under great appliance sale or something. And they opened the credit to make sure they're good for it and told the salesman, hey, I can't buy it right now. I'll buy it after escrow. But I've opened the credit as a sign of good faith. So hold them for me at this price and I'll come pick them up in another week. And great for the salesman. But it pegged on the credit report and the lender calls me up and says, hey, your clients opened a new credit line, and now we've got some issues. So we had to go contact Best Buy's headquarters in Minneapolis and get a letter from them stating that there was zero debt. They did not make any purchases on the credit line. And, you know, it delayed closing by three or four days before we got that back from Best Buy. But anytime somebody runs your credit, the lender is going to require a written explanation, both from you and from the credit grantor, as to whether or not you've incurred any debt. So don't do it. And, uh, you know, last but not least, don't die before escrow closes because that messes it up for everybody. Just kidding. Okay, so we've gone through escrow. We're getting close to the end here. You've gone through, you've gotten your final approval. The appraisal's fine. The inspections are fine. We're all happy and just cruising right through the end. So you still have a few responsibilities you have to execute as the buyer. The last big three you have to get your the, the balance of your down payment in 
to escrow prior to the date they tell you. If they say, we need it three days before closing, get it in four or five days before closing. If it's a difference between sending it on a Friday or the following Monday, send it on the Friday just to make sure they have it and everything's fine. Now, on this note, and this is very important, I know I joke around a lot, on this particular note, wire fraud is the number one crime in real estate. We've literally had FBI agents into our office to talk to the agents on all the different ways they do it. They are every day in Los Angeles having to go find some, go sit down with somebody who had either their proceeds or their down payment stolen via wire fraud where somebody either called up the escrow officer and said, no, I'm, you know what, since we're moving, we've changed banks. Here's our new account. Uh, Or, you know, somebody typically through the realtor, the fish, you know, some kind of phishing scheme will compromise their email. They'll send an email to the buyer saying, hey, escrow's asked that you change the wire to this information, and it gets out that way. But it's a real serious issue. We've trained our escrow officers for years now with very strict protocol. When you open your escrow pack, there's a big yellow page that says, do not change any wire instructions unless you come into the office and talk to us face-to-face. It's definitely inconvenient, but it protects your money, and that's why it's there. So, responsibilities you have going into closing, right before we close the house and you get keys. Get your money in early, the balance of your down payment. Sign your loan documents. Come with your picture ID, your driver's license, because the notary needs to see that. Do your final walkthrough with the agent sometime in the last five days prior to close of escrow. You need to go back out and take a look at the house, make sure it's in the same condition as it was when you wrote the offer. If you did have repairs that they were supposed to execute, you need to make sure that those were done and you should see receipts from the vendors that did the repairs. Or if you got a credit... Just make sure nothing got worse. So once you've done all that, you've wired your money and you signed your loan docs, at that point, you're on cruise control as the buyer because you don't have anything left to do at this point. Your agent will notify you once escrow has closed. And typically, it's a two-day process. On day one of the closing, the bank will wire the funds into escrow so the money's there. Once escrow has identified that money and say, okay, we have everything, the numbers balance out, they will then notify title, who has somebody every day down at the county recorder's office that that transfers the grant deed from their name into your name, and then you become the owner on the second day. There are situations in Ventura County where you can do what's called a special recording where you can fund and close the same day. A little more complicated, but Ventura County allows it. It's very, very difficult to do it in Los Angeles County, although I have seen it done before. So once you have all that done, you need to move in, unpack, get the boxes out, figure on six weeks for that before everything's where you want it, but you know, still get started as soon as you get in. You should have a housewarming party. Uh, talk to us about that. And then you want to refer all your friends and family to Richard and Kirsten so we can get them a house and have them have as great an experience as you did when we closed on your house. So hopefully we've shared some of how we do it here, given you some ideas if you didn't think about it that much or if you didn't have the same experience when you bought your house. Next time you want to buy a house, call us or refer a friend. We'd love to help them. You can always reach us at sold at powellfinehomes.com for email, or you can call us at 805-404-1167. We're always on Facebook. We're always on Instagram. Multiple accounts across the board on that. Also, we got some really cool podcasts coming up. We've got a couple of different types of insurance, uh, which sounds boring on the top of it, but with the Thomas fires and the mudslides, there's been quite a few changes over there. We've got some property and casualty guys are going to talk about that. We've got a different guy whose specialty is in insurance for people who are in their later years who who want to 
be able to cover what happens when you have to go to a nursing home where you don't have to liquidate all your assets. So there's a coverage there. And then uh, the most fun of the bunch is one of our clients who actually insures all the music tours all over the country and all over the world. He's got some great stories to tell. So those will be coming up in future podcasts. Thanks again for joining us. We'll be back soon. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you like what you heard or you want more info, please give us a call at 805-404-1167. Again, that's 805-404-1167 or send an email to sold at powellfinehomes.com. If you're ready to move on with your life in Los Angeles or Ventura counties, call us even quicker. The team at Powell Fine Homes are your real estate experts and who you hire matters. You can find us on the web, on Facebook, and on Instagram every day, and you'll love the results that our proven systems and model deliver for you. Call, email, or DM us today, and we'll see you next time. Thanks again for listening.